in case you were not paying attention this morning, Easter is about Jesus Christ rising from the dead. 2,000 years ago he did that. He's still alive today, and that's our hope. Today we're going to consider some of the benefits of this incredible truth. What difference does it make to us today that Jesus rose from the dead? What we'll see is that one way it makes a big difference is we rejoice in hope. We rejoice in hope. No matter what suffering or hardship we're facing, the way you live now is completely controlled by what you believe about your future. The way you live now is completely controlled by what you believe about your future. We'll see that there are massive reasons for hope as we look at Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. As we prepare to read that text, uh, right before Romans chapter 5 comes Romans chapter 4. Great, you are so on it. And the last few verses of Romans chapter 4 talk about uh, that righteousness, rightness in God's sight, is counted to those who believe in Jesus Christ having risen from the dead. And uh, he, he says, Jesus was delivered up to death for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Justification is a big word that means being counted right in God's sight. So in his resurrection, he guaranteed that by faith we could be, re- we could be counted righteous in his sight. As uh, Tim Keller has noted, God's way of st- the resurrection was God's way of stamping paid in full right across history so that nobody could miss it. So stand with me as I read from Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. Stand for the reading of God's word. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Father, give life to your word this morning. Guide us into your word by your Holy Spirit. Visit us so we can have our eyes open to see the glory of Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So in verse 1, Therefore, since we have now been counted righteous by faith, we have peace with God. This is not an unstable peace like peace treaties between nations. It means the hostilities between God and us have now been replaced by fellowship and communion with Him. If it's a surprise to you that there is hostility between God and people, Just go back and read the first three chapters of Romans and you get a pretty heavy dose that there's major hostility between God and people. 
All have sinned and fall short of God's glory. All the world is accountable to God, liable to God for violating his righteous standards. But now God has provided a way that he can count us right in the sight that we can receive by faith. That takes care of our legal standing before him, so our, our liability to his righteous law. But more than that, it says through Jesus Christ our Lord, God didn't just provide for our legal debt to be paid so we could be justified. He provided for our, our relational divide to be mended so we could have peace with him through our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is our peace with God. Which reminds me of the story of the peace child. Have you ever read the story of the peace child? Some of you have. It's um, a story about uh, Don and Carol Richardson, who were missionaries in Netherlands, New Guinea. I think today it's called Irian Jaya, back in the 60s. And uh, they sought for some way to relate the news of the gospel to the Sawi people, who are a cannibalistic people. Richard tells them stories of the Bible until he realizes with alarm that the Sawi see Judas as a hero for his friendship and treachery, then betrayal of Jesus. So they thought, way to go, Judas. You, you committed treachery. That's awesome. So he's thinking, all right, I need some help here. I need a way to communicate to them the gospel. And so what, what would that be? In addition, there's another, uh, some tree villagers who come to live in the area surrounding the missionaries that fail to live at peace. So there's a lot of conflict and war between these tribes. The missionary Don Richardson announces to the village leaders that until peace comes to the area, he's going to leave for another Sawi village. They were desperate to keep the missionaries in their supply of steel tools, so they, they liked those, those metal tools, and they didn't want to lose the missionaries for that sake. So the Sawi perform a peace child uh, ceremony. Each village presents the enemy with an infant as a peace child. As long as the child lives, they explain to, to Richardson, the village lives at peace. In case of an offense, someone may plead the peace child and strife will cease. So he's able to take that analogy and eventually lead them to, to embrace Christ about, because of the reality of the peace child. Jesus is that peace child between two warring parties. In verse 2, Paul writes, Also through Jesus we have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. This grace refers to the right standing and peace we have through Jesus. Paul's point is that we didn't get placed on probationary status with God when, when we came to faith in Jesus. Through Jesus, we gain permanent access to these grace gifts in which we continue to stand because our access is through Christ himself as resurrected Son of God and Savior. So as permanent as Jesus is, we are locked in to, to our standing before God, to, to the grace in which we stand. And because we have permanent access into this grace of justification and peace, we rejoice, he says. The word means we joyfully, confidently boast. We, we exult in hope of the glory of God. What does he mean by that? What he's saying is, he, he means we exult in the certain hope that what God has begun in us by grace will surely result in our being glorified when we are resurrected. It's like Paul says in Philippians 3.21, Jesus Christ will transform our lowly body. Did you know you have a lowly body? And it's getting lowlier and lowlier all the time. Yeah. Transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. So Jesus' body is the model. Yes, we long to see his glory, but that will be when we are sinless and perfect and immortal and even more ravishingly beautiful 
ravishingly beautiful than you are now. But you're a pretty beautiful group, so you have a lot going for you. And radiant with the glory of God. Whatever your hope for your future is determines what you rejoice in, what you exult in now. Whatever your hope for the future is determines what you rejoice in, what you count as joy now. If it's retiring with enough money for ease and travel, you will exult in the buildup of your retirement account. If it's getting married, you rejoice in how your relationship with your loved one is going. If your hope is in the Blazers going far in the playoffs, like Greg, then I won't comment. <laughs> These are not in and of themselves all bad things, but at the top of your hope list by far should be hope in being eternally glorified through Christ. Really, it should be. And we need the scripture to tell us these things because otherwise it just sounds weird to us. But it's the, most, it's the greatest thing we have going for us, to, to be transformed, sinless, deathless, sorrowless, painless, glorified, radiant, never to die again, no more sin. That's our hope. In verse 3, Paul says, even though already we are beginning to rejoice in hope of the glory of, of, the glory of God, we are not yet transformed to be like him. It's a process. Between then and now, we have many sufferings. So not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Sicknesses, relationship, pain and disappointments, rejection, injuries, mental illnesses, financial problems, loneliness, job loss, can't get a job, lousy job, unrealized goals and dreams, crime, victimization, persecution, fears, anxieties, death of loved ones, aging, facing our own death to name some of the things that we struggle with. Okay, so we rejoice in hope of glory, but we groan and complain about our present sufferings. Well, no, Paul says we rejoice in our sufferings. Surely Paul means we rejoice in the midst of our sufferings. Well, yes, but not only that, we rejoice in our sufferings. Is Paul serious? I mean... I've got Parkinson's disease. Am I supposed to be rejoicing in that? Well, the answer as to how we do that is not your favorite alcoholic beverage. You rejoice in your sufferings knowing something because of what you know. What we know is that suffering produces endurance, he says. Suffering produces endurance. Patient endurance, perseverance. Runners or bikers or swimmers, you know that the suffering of continuing to push yourself produces endurance. And you endure because you want the goal of health and or to be competitive in a race. So do we really rejoice in our sufferings? Well, my experience is that's hard. It's really hard to have the emotional experience of joy in suffering. I think Jesus experienced that as well. Um, in, in Hebrews it says, For the joy set before him, he despised the cross. He, he, he endured the cross, despising the shame. So it's kind of like by faith you keep embracing joy and you hope that it becomes more and more of reality in your life in this, in this world. Like James says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Count it all joy. You may not be feeling joy, but count it as joy. And by faith, keep on the joy journey. Pray that it becomes more and more of reality in your life. 
Because you know the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. So James on the same track as Paul. And verse 4 talks about endurance produces character. As you endure suffering, the useless things get purged from your life. And the character qualities of Christ that God wants to grow in your life and develop and grow stronger. So endurance produces proven character. Stronger faith in God and obedience to Him. And this tested and proven character produces hope. How does that work? Because stronger faith and moral transformation evidences that God is changing you. This assures you that hope of future glory is real as God conforms you more and more to Jesus. Diamonds are the hardest natural substance on earth. They're renowned for their strength, their durability, and, and stunning beauty. And you've got to get one to get married, right? They're formed by incredible pressure and mind-boggling hot temperatures deep within the Earth's mantle. A diamond begins life as black carbon deep inside the Earth. Every single diamond begins as black carbon that eventually turns into a precious, stunning gem. If we didn't know the process by which carbon is formed into diamonds, we would have no hope that carbon had a future being changed into something strong, beautiful, and valuable through intense pressure and heat. Likewise, we need this text to tell us what suffering does in, in the grace of God in our lives. We need this text to teach us this truth if we are to rejoice in hope in our sufferings, knowing that suffering um, produces endurance, produces character, produces hope. What happens if we don't respond to suffering with joyful confidence and trust in God's good purposes in our suffering? What happens if we don't? Well, the result can be bitterness, despair, giving up, even hopelessness instead of hope. Could our failure to respond in joyful trust in God ruin us, even to losing our faith? Well, Paul says later in Romans 8.30 that if he has justified you, he's going to ensure that you end up being glorified. That's good news. There's no fallout. But that doesn't mean that those whom God has justified don't have seasons of great faith struggles and don't experience feelings of bitterness, despair, or hopelessness. It does mean that God is at work in us to overcome these hope defeaters and depleters. God uses his word, his people, and our prayers to build our hope. And we need these regularly. We need them constantly. So it's like, don't just talk about doing your devotions, saying your prayers. This is a lifeline. I need the Word of God. I need your prayers. You need your prayers. I need your prayers. We need one another's prayers. We need one another to help one another keep, keep hope robust and growing. Johnny Erickson Tata is a quadriplegic from a 1960s diving accident. In recent years, she has also been experiencing chronic nonstop pain. She writes, this present life crisis has tripled my heart's longing for the ultimate healing that will be mine just around the corner in heaven. My friend, she says, this is not a daydream or a pleasant diversion for me. It's a lifeline. It's hope. It's sanity. It's, it's a place where my mind can go when it's way too difficult to contemplate where I am. In fact, what we need most from God to keep drawing us back to him when we are losing hope is what Paul says in verse 5. In verse 5 he says, Hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts 
through the Holy Spirit. We who are right with God through faith alone in Christ need to know that it is worth continuing to hope in God because our hope will not put us to shame. You'll not be ashamed of your hope. And our hope will not put us to shame because God's love has been abundantly lavishing, lavishly poured out in your heart through the Holy Spirit. You've got lots of love of, of God poured into your heart. Richard Baxter, a, a pastor of the 1600s, said, It is God's love poured out into the heart by the Holy Spirit which must make us rejoice in hope of the glory of God. This will do it, and without this it will not be done. This is what we need in suffering, a constant sense of God's love for us. He doesn't take us through suffering and trials because he doesn't love us, but because he does love us. Because he does love us. He knows exactly what we need to prepare us for glory. He doesn't just tell us that suffering produces endurance, which produces proven character, which produces hope. He freely pours out his love into our hearts so that we know and experience his love so that we don't lose hope in suffering. You know this on a human level, don't you? When you're struggling, um, someone's helping you, they're more or less helpful, those things are good, but if you know they love you, that gives you hope. One said, the love of God will overcome abundance of temptations which no man's wisdom or learning or knowledge of words of Scripture will overcome. No arguments will draw a loving wife or a loving child from parents or husband that they know loves them. So God's abundantly poured out his love in our hearts, but as the measure of love is sacrifice, Paul will spell that out in verses 6 through 11 of Romans chapter 5. He talks about, in verse 6, while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. Weak has a sense of total incapacity for good, it means a person is helpless to get themselves out of their dilemma. At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. could mean at the right time in God's plan of redemption, but it may well just mean that he died at the right time to rescue the ungodly from their peril. He didn't die for people because they deserved it. He didn't die for people who just needed an inspiring example to help them reach their potential. Christ died for the ungodly. And that's proof of his love, proof that he loves us. We who are weak and helpless in our ungodliness, hopeless in our ungodliness. And he, he makes this example in verse 7. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. It is rare that someone will die even for a righteous person, he says. It may be that for a good person someone would, would dare to die. Someone might die for a person who has done good for them. People do give their lives for people they are close to, spouses, children, uh, combat buddies. But in verse 8, but God demonstrates his own love for us. How? In that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God shows now in the present his love for us by what he did 2,000 years ago when he gave his son to die for us. This is the way we know God's love for us. If you don't know Christ died for you as a sinner, as an ungodly person, you, you don't know his love. This is the greatest demonstration of God's love for us because sin is the root problem we have 
and Christ's death for us was our only hope to be saved. God took the initiative. God took the initiative. He didn't wait around for us to start thinking, hey, I think I need God. He took the initiative. He didn't die for sinners because he detected them moving toward him or because he saw a great potential in them. While we were still rebels, blindly following our own way, our own religion, our own spirituality, our own morality, Christ died for us. And then he says in verse 9, Therefore, since God has demonstrated his love by giving his son to die for sinners, therefore our hope is certain that he shall preserve us from his coming day of wrath. And there is a day of wrath coming. There's a day of judgment coming. And we need to know that. Christ's death guarantees if we put faith in him, we don't have to endure that wrath. Since in his love we have now been justified by Christ's blood, much more shall we be safe by him from God's righteous wrath. If God already did the harder thing, so to speak, paid the legal debt we owe to sinners by the blood of his son so that he could count us right with him when we trust Christ, how much more will he do the easier thing and save us from his wrath who are already justified? Christ already absorbed God's wrath against us by his death. And verse 10 makes a similar argument as verse 9. If while we were enemies of God, we were reconciled to him by the death of his son. If by the sin-bearing death of Jesus, he removed the enmity, the hostility between us and God, so as to reconcile us as friends, he's made us to be his friends, how much more now that we are reconciled as friends to him, shall we be saved by his life? If God has done the harder thing and reconciled two warring parties like peace child, by his son's death, much more having accomplished reconciliation, shall he save us by the life of the resurrected Son of God. He not only died for us, he lives for us. He intercedes for us. We mentioned this last week. Romans 8.34, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. It says similar in, in Hebrews chapter 7. He is able, Christ is able, to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. So Christ constantly has you in his mind. He's constantly upholding you. He's constantly keeping you in his saving tractor beam. He's constantly interceding for you. So we are justified and reconciled by Christ's death. We shall be saved by his resurrected life. We shall never experience his wrath. In verse 11, more than that, or better, not only that, we also rejoice in God. Not only do we know that if we have been counted right with God and reconciled by faith in Christ, we shall be saved by his life. We also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. Paul has said we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. We rejoice in our sufferings. Now he says we rejoice in God himself. We don't just rejoice in our final glory or in our sufferings, knowing that they are producing endurance, character, and hope, but rejoice in God himself. God is the prize. He's really what we long for. And yet, even in saying this, Paul said that we rejoice in God through Jesus Christ because he alone has revealed God to us and reconciled us to him. We can't know God's saving love for us. We can't really know who God is apart from Jesus Christ. He is the revelation of God. To us. 
He's the only way we know what it is to be saved. That is, we are reconciled to God if we have received the reconciliation. That's what he says, through whom we have now received the reconciliation, through faith in Christ. It's very simple. There's no applications to fill out. The only qualification required is to confess to God that you don't qualify to be counted right in His sight by your own goodness. And then you put your faith in resurrected Christ to, to save you. Paul later says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Would you put your trust in the one who died and rose again for your salvation? Tim Keller said, if the death of Christ happened for us and he bore our hopelessness so that now we can have hope, and if the resurrection of Christ happened, then even the worst things will, will turn into the best things and the greatest are yet to come. Father, we thank you at your stunning, amazing grace in giving us Christ, reconciling us to you. He is the peace child. In him we were covered from ever enduring your wrath. Through him you poured out your love abundantly to our hearts. I pray, Father, that we would be a people who just more and more live out of the love that you have for us in Christ. We know that we are deeply loved. We know that we're mightily saved in him. And we'd be a people who rejoice in hope in the midst of our sufferings, rejoicing in you, rejoicing in hope of the glory of God. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.